Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special but regular Sunday mailbag edition. And with me, well, I would normally tell you as always, and that's been true, but this is his last podcast, unfortunately, episode. As a permanent full-time fool, though he will be a fool for life, capital F fool, of course, Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, buddy? I'm great, you know, very good, bit sad, but it's going to be good. Still, we're going to make this a great episode. There we go. It is unquestionably sad, mate. I share that sadness. Uh, but we aren't, well, we're assuming you're not going to be lost to us forever. We, we have got some member feedback. They want you back. I want you back. It sounds like you want to come back. So we will have you back from time to time on the podcast as a special guest. Those will be great episodes that I'm sure our listeners will be tuning in to make sure they don't miss. And nor should they because uh, your insights are absolutely well worth tuning in for and listening for. Hey, by the way, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss those because you never know when they're coming up. All right, mates. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start this one the way we start every mailbag episode, but we never, ever get there. We've got a million questions to get through, mate, and most of them, or a lot of them either are addressed to you or actually are words of praise for you. And while I'm generally allergic to giving other people praise and rather take it for myself, uh, I will make sure that we do cover some of those. So I'm going to try and make it, well, as I said, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm, I'm not expecting this to succeed. We've failed every single time we've tried to be quick with these questions, but I'm going to try one last time with gusto to see if we can get through them and without further ado let's move for a question from josh hi scott and doc keep up the great work on the podcast doc i'm sad to see you are moving on have really enjoyed your insight and knowledge you have shared over the last two years or so i have been listening to the podcast thank you josh i'm sure doc uh, well thank you put thank you too he says i'm a mem- to my question i'm a member of extreme opportunities and share advisor is there any reason why eo recommendations come out at midday during the trading day and the SA recommendations at 4.30 after the market closes. I know it's been discussed before, and I understand that EO's recs are smaller and more volatile, and sometimes the price can jump a lot straight off the back of the rec. Compare that to the larger cap share advisor recommendations, where they don't seem to get the big price jumps at the time the rec goes out. But, Josh says, could there be a case that because EO recs come out intra-trade, that was during the trading day, that more members are just rushing in Whereas with SA Rex, at least members have overnight to assess the pick and decide to buy in or not. Thanks again for the great work, Josh. Mate, you're uh, for one last time here to represent extreme opportunities. Although, uh, as you mentioned on Friday, Kevin's Kevin's kind of you, you've, you've handed over the reins already. Uh, but on Kevin's behalf, I'll get you to answer that one. I may add some thoughts, but uh, mate, why during the day? Yeah, I'll give some historical perspective on 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 why. So, a couple of things. I think. When when EO we launched EO, you know when it was in June I think 2017. I think one of the things was that we were going to look at small cap uh, or small micro cap and illiquid stocks, uh, and or relatively illiquid stocks. Then then sort of one of the issues that happens with and this is you know a lot of um, there's a little bit of a discrepancy I guess between what you know how retail investors might behave and how uh, I guess institutions might see what retail investors are doing. So one of the things that could happen, for example, is if you release the recommendation, say, after market close, people see it uh, and then they basically put in their orders, right? And before market opens and then it, the, the orders are visible to uh, to market participants at that point and which, you know, which is, and then for relatively illiquid companies, it is possible that, you know, there'll be some uh, off-screen volume that is available, which can just you know increase sort of their bid price, 
uh, or you know the pri- or or their their sell price, the price that they were willing mm. to sell, and and sort of cause the price to move up. So I think one of the advantages of doing it during the daytime is that well, orders will still pile in, but at least some orders are going to go through in the beginning. Uh, that's going to match up with the current available demand. And then, of course, if there's more demand, then there's going to be more supply that comes in. I think in like, I think it helps manage the amount. Here's the other thing, right? If, if a stock moves unfairly because of short-term demand blip, mm. that stock, unless stuff changes, all things being equal, that stock's basically going to drop. Because when the demand <laughs> normalizes, it basically is going to drop. Now, now yeah. people will say, well, if that's the case, it should always drop. It doesn't always drop because stuff changes. Maybe our recommendation exposes the company to a larger number of people. Maybe it goes, you know, um, you know, some fund managers become interested and then they start building their positions. I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities, right? Um, and that can cause the price to actually continue moving up. So... Is there a good fix for this? No, because again, it's just a function. <laughs> it's unfortunately a function of, like if you look at $500 million market cap and less, these are small yeah. companies. Many yeah. of them have, you know, a relatively uh, smaller float than $500 million because, you know, they might be founder owners or there might be some insider stakes, which is basically not trading. So then you're left with like, you know, a few hundred million dollars of potential liquid volume of which some might be held by other people. But as we have always said, I think with you, the idea is that you try to get some big winners, um, and to get some big winners, you might get some relatively big losers over my time. I've had uh, a number of companies that have dropped 80%, 90%. We've mm-hmm. sold at 80 90% loss, uh, some of these companies. And stuff like that happens, but I think we, we believe that if you have enough upside, then the, up, the ones that are the upside are going to be enough to more than enough to actually wipe out the losses on the downside for the ones that we are going to lose on. So, so I think that's sort of the idea. Uh, would things? I mean, you don't know what would ha- you know. We don't know how big the pops are going to be if you made it after market hours. Again, mm. it's an unknown, unknown because until you do it, and then also you have to do it for several months to then maybe make a comparison of you know whether it's big, and then by the time maybe the EO um, membership changes becomes bigger, wider, right. maybe people become more confident. So there's so many factors; it's hard to um, no. I, I'll, one last point I'll add, like you know, so sometimes we take inspiration from others, right? So in uh, in our in the US. Uh, Stock advisor releases recommendations during the day, and there are other services that re- release recommendations after market close. Ma- majority do after market close. So again, you know, both mar- both approaches work. To the final point about whether people assess, more people will assess. This is what I'll say: if if people, those people who want to assess an idea and then buy, are going to buy assess the idea and then buy, irrespective of when you release the rec. Because that is that is the characteristic of those people, those people <laughs> who want to buy because somebody they believe has tipped them an idea which they really yeah. like, they're going to buy it without re- without doing any additional due diligence. There's mm-hmm. essentially entire capital. I never buy a company just because somebody has mentioned it to me, even if I see the share price is going up. I'm going to actually yeah. look into it before I buy it. And so, I think you know. 
again, we have to remember that there's an entire gamut of, like the gamut of audience in the retail mm. space is huge and large and diverse. And I think it's neither here nor there. It's, it's my overall thoughts. Perfect summary, mate. Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, every other Motley Fool service does it after hours. We would have done it with after hours with EO as well, but it was the lesser of two evils. And frankly, so is SA. SA as launch is still also the lesser of two evils. Um, is one better than the other? I, I don't know. I think, you know, all, all things equal, we like the idea, as you've already mentioned, Doc, of giving people time to look at the wrecks. Uh, but frankly, the, the rush at midday, I am, we can't know for sure, as you say, mate. I'm very sure, though. <laughs> you know, not, not certain. You never can be. I'm very sure if we gave people was it you know uh 18 hours uh, to get ready put their orders in share it with their friends get ready for 10 o'clock the next morning uh, the, the, the amount number orders stacked up at 10 a.m would actually mean that eos could simply recommend fewer companies you guys would have had to have put in place stricter limits to things like liquidity and uh, size just because you know i, I mean look, we could be wrong we could be wrong but i uh, you know the, the decision was made at the time for exactly that purpose um and you know it is the lesser of two evils. Do, do we do we recommend those market beating stocks <laughs> or not? Uh, well, you know, um, and that's the other thing, by the way, is our scorecard takes that price, including any pop that we get on the on the day, and and the guys are still doing a spectacular job picking those stocks and doing really well with them. So, um, you know, we we are eating our own cooking on a scorecard level on that on that basis. Um, I know it's frustrating to see the price move. There is a bit of anchoring there, Josh. Too, don't forget. Um, you know, we see the price popping. Like, oh man, I wish I bought it earlier. What could we do to remove the pop? Of course, we would if we could. But we'd rather – you mentioned on Friday, Doctor, about value stocks, right, and then taking the pain out of valuation. If the EO team are right about the stocks they're picking and they get the right companies and the upside is meaningful, uh, you know, whether you bought Amazon at $3 or $3.30 or $4, didn't – I own shares for the record – didn't matter when the shares now at 3000 bucks. You know, yes, you know, could I have bought a couple more shares? Sure. All the stuff that we go through. But, man, you would have rather bought it at a higher price than not bought it at all because of the price had jumped. And I think not every company's Amazon. It's a – it's an easy example, and maybe it's maybe it's too easy. Maybe I should find better examples that are less extreme. Uh, but it's but it's an example of the sort of return you wouldn't want to miss out on just because you're worried about the pop. I said we we always do what we could to minimise it because no one wants to pay more than they have to, and we do tell our members of all those services to you know be careful, use a limit order, buy sensibly, all that. Do, do your research, as Doc says. But that's it. I'm going to stop talking, mate, because I want to move on. All right, let's get a question from Nick. Hey, Scott, big fan of the podcast. Got a question first name only if you're answering on the show well that was lucky i did nick thank you i'm 23 i started investing in may oh dude how good's that for timing i built up a portfolio of 19 companies and etfs here's his confession doc some of my purchases were short term he says i know i know positions which i'm now looking at selling because i think they are overpriced and reallocating my capital to better ideas i have one to two companies that fell sharply off their recent earnings results but my thesis is unchanged What's your opinion on selling those companies to offset the capital gains tax and then buying back into a lower cost base, given my thesis is unbroken? P.S. Sad to hear Doc is leaving the fool and the podcast. Give him my best wishes. Well, Nick, you've done that directly. Thank you for that, mate. Really appreciate it. Doc, a um, couple of companies, still loves them, but the share price is down. Should he sell, harvest the tax saving, and then buy them back? Oh, I well, I never do that. <laughs> Uh, largely because I would forget to buy them. I'm also <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my biggest problem. Number one is that I'll just forget to buy them because I've sold them and you know yeah. stuff happens. And the number two is it's just you want you to be aware of these so-called wash rules, right? I mean, yeah. the wash rules I believe for eight years not very well defined, but I mean, Correct. effectively, if you if you're selling and booking a loss to offset a gain and then you're buying it back, it's effectively the same as not having sold it. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Uh, and that gate, that that loss that you're booking is basically artificial. So ATO could take a look at that. I don't. Again, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not a tax consultant. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you should talk to your financial advisor about this. But I just, yeah, th- that's one of the things that I actually expressly don't do. If I like a company, <laughs> if I want to keep it, I just keep it. Yep. Um, I, I'll, I'll add one more thing. No. Like, I'm sure there must be another company that is, you know, it can't be that your portfolio of 19 companies are all winning and they're all great, right? Maybe there's one company that you really hate that's down in the, you know, the dumps and that you want to oh, sell. You bought him in dude. He's made money on everything, the lucky bugger. <laughs> he, he, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't have lost money buying him, mate. He's, he's just, he picked it beautifully. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's I'm, why I'm, I'm very saying- jealous of you, Nick. I'm going to get his buddy. He's 23, and he started investing in May. Nick, Nick, you have used don't buy don't buy any more lottery tickets, mate. You've used up a life's worth of luck financially right there. So uh, well done, mate. I will I will just add a bit of, a little bit more detail. Um, so the idea of a wash rule in the US they have very specific rules about you can't sell and buy back in a certain number of days. Here we don't have those rules, but the ATO has very broad. And by broad, I mean partly, as you say, not very clearly defined, Doc, but also very broad as in sweeping, as in, be careful, uh, they, they can get you, rules about tax avoidance. And if the ATO was to decide that you were trying to avoid tax, which is illegal, minimizing tax is fine, avoiding tax is illegal. If they decide you have avoided tax by taking this action specifically for this purpose, uh, they can come down here like a ton of bricks. Will they? I don't know. Uh, like Doc, I've never done it. I'm not going to do it. My general view on tax and life in general is if I am if I don't know where the line is, I'm too close to it. You know, like if I'm not sure, you know what? I, might, I, I sleep I, I sleep better. I don't, I don't need to, you know, for a couple of bucks, uh, I don't need to uh, lose that much sleep and, and worry and stress and stuff. So uh, up to you, Nick. I would, I can't give you personal advice. I would never do it. I just don't see the point. Because um, by the way, if you do that and then you harvest the tax loss, you got a lower cost base, which is nice, except when you sell it next time, you have more tax to pay <laughs> if the share price does go back up. Yes, the money's better now than later, and you know, literally mathematically, yes, you're right. Uh, if you can, you know, uh, buy at twenty, sell at ten, buy at ten, sell at twenty. You know, effectively, the, the results the same. Uh, maybe you got some losses you can offset. There's, there's reasons you might do it. Uh, I would be very, very, very careful. All right, last question from Michael. G'day, Scott. Hope the rain is easing up there in New South Wales. It is. Thank you, mate. It's uh, The grass is all soggy outside my office, can I tell you? It's, it's, it was sloshy for a while, Doc, but it's, it's still pretty soggy. I uh, hope the rain is easing up there in New South Wales. Our thoughts are with you, guys, from Victoria. Thank you, mate. Question for the pod. In honour of Doc's last week at The Fool, I thought I'd ask a question about a private company I know he was interested in. Rocket Labs is going public through a SPAC. We talked about SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, last week. What are your thoughts? Valuation, $4.1 billion at $10 a share. Thanks in advance, Mike. And my favorite thing from our list, or second favorite, my first favorite is uh, praise and, uh, and, and five stars. My, my second favorite is disclosure. And Mike says, full disclosure, I am long, exclamation mark. So he's interested in the SPAC. He's got it. Rocket Lab, mate, you keen? Oh, I actually don't know much about um, uh, Rocket Labs, so okay. I really don't have a view of uh, whether or not it's a buy. Uh, I think space, the space sector is interesting. Uh, there, yeah. there are a few players there now. Rocket Lab is one of them. Uh, you know, Virgin Galactic is another one of them. Mm. There's Blue Origin, there's SpaceX. So, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, it's an interesting area, but I don't know much about Rocket Lab to have actually... That's a lot of billionaires and a lot of ego, can I say? Between Elon, Jeff Bezos, and, and Richard Branson, there, there was no shortage of self-confidence in that group. <laughs> so, yeah, up with. Uh, I know. Like, I mean, it's a very interesting... Like, again, it's one of those... You know, what I like about that sector overall is just that it is one of those places which is really hard 
Mm. Um, and it's largely government dominated, right? Yeah. But that's what, you know, it's like, if you think about disruption, so many things have been disrupted. It's very hard to yeah, continue right. disrupting those disrupted things, but you could disrupt yeah. things that have not changed significantly, say from the 1960s, right? Yeah. A lot of the rocket technology is still 1960s. Mm. Effectively, you know, uh, the baseline technology is at least. I like that, mate. Um, I, and, and I guess, yeah, if you wanted to invest in space, there aren't that many places to do it yet, right? Like those companies we've talked about, is Virgin Galactic public? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. But, oh, but or, 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 yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> that has a beautiful code. It's called SPACE, S-P-C-E. <laughs> oh, that's cool. There you go. Points for that. Um, of course, SpaceX, Elon's business is not. Blue Origin's not. Uh, would you would you would you kind of if you're interested in space would you kind of take a basket approach here and be like you know what I can't invest in the ones I want to but I'll take something or would you wait for the best one to come through and only buy the one you're most keen on buying? Oh, like as I said, like I I don't know enough about that mm. sector to mm. really have like I have not done much research on any of those things. Like I have, I don't really know what SpaceX is doing. Other than what I like watching the news, I don't really yeah. know what Virgin Galactic is doing. Uh, other than what I have seen on the news, and you know, I'm a lot, I, I just I'm an interested observer because I just find those things fascinating. Or people are you know yeah. floating around and <laughs> space, or they're going to an international space station, and or yeah. they you know these rockets are landing. I just think it, from a science point of view, that's all very very fascinating stuff. But I yeah. really don't know the business model. Or I don't know what their, you know, like what their plans are. So, like, I mean, I haven't actually even read anything in detail about those things. Okay. to actually have a view, but I just think it's super cool, super interesting, and I I follow it more for like the you know, success of mm-hmm. humankind, but uh, like but that. nothing else. I um Elon Elon's winning the headline war in the bloody video sharing war, mate. Between putting a roadster in space and and landing rockets back on their base, uh, th- those I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know how you beat that. That is that is pure sci-fi stuff. That is uh, uh, that is super super cool. I don't know what Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are doing, but man, they're losing the PR war. That is I, again not that those things are the most important things. Although the reusable rocket idea is actually fundamentally part of the SpaceX business model and working really really well. But just super cool, right? Like how do, you can't get bored of watching rockets land. Back on a, back on a, a launch pad, uh, just a phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Very cool. Let's let's get a question from Daniel, mate. Um, excuse me. Hi, Scott. Dan here, age twenty three. Oh, man, hate these young people, doc. And a keen listener of the podcast from the UK, having been lucky enough to discover it while spending last year in Australia. Mate, hopefully you're you're staying safe in the UK. Hopefully you had a good time when you were over here. I thoroughly enjoy listening to your ideas and discussions with the doc and feel like they teach me something each week. Thanks. Pleasure. Our pleasure, mate. Recently, you discussed how many companies earn revenue in other countries than where they are based or listed. It was mentioned in the context of why the big tin can share price might have dropped recently. However, I think this is relevant to many companies, including another one I'm interested in, Mercado Libre, reporting it back in their local Currency, I think he meant. He says company, but I think he means currency. I typically don't place too much emphasis on currency effects over the long term. However, they can have a reasonably significant impact on the numbers reported by a company with large international operations. I'm wondering if you on the dock can explore the, in brackets, unimportance of the local currency versus the listed or reported currency. It would seem to me that if the company was just listed in the country it earned most money, e.g. Mercado Libre listed in a South American country like Brazil, then this all really doesn't matter. However, I'd be more than happy for you to tell me I'm wrong. Thanks again for all your hard work and best of luck to the doc for the future. Dan. Doc, over to you. Does it matter? Do you care? How do you how do you how do you how do you process the two different reporting currencies, the local and the listing currency? 
Yeah, also thank you, Dan, for um, for the best of luck and stuff like that first. Um, well, okay, so the, I think the currency fluctuation matters, right? It matters in the sense that, suppose, Mercado Libre, which, which I personally own as well, mm. uh, you know, a long-time shareholder for that, but if you if it was listed in, say, uh, Brazil, mm-hmm. I mean, effectively, you'd be buying those shares on Brazilian, uh, you know, reals or whatever it is called. I forgot what it's mm-hmm. actually, what the Brazilian, <laughs> I think it's called reals. reals I yeah, think. that's right. Reals, yeah, I think that's right. That's right. Reals. So in Brazilian currency. And then your share price, you know, if you were to sell it, then you're going to get it effectively in, again, Brazilian mm. currency, right? And then, <laughs> and then if you want to make use of it, you're probably going to, if I'm living in Australia, I'm going to change it into Australian um, dollars at that point. And therefore, if there has been a huge change in, so for example, if the currency lost value significantly over a long period mm. of time, then while, so fundamentally, this, you know, the shares might have gone up, say, 10x, but if the currency right. has lost value in half, that's actually a 5x now, right? So those impacts can be real, and they tend to be a bigger concern in emerging economies where um, there's higher rates of inflation and sort of the, um, you know, the, the buying part of the currency sort of de- deteriorates over time. Um, mm. Until you know, until things change, right? So I think it matters for that point of view. Like my favorite example for this is, you know, um, people will say that I own a property in X Y Z. Like I'm using an example of India. Oh, my property is now worth you know twice it was worth in 2017 <laughs> right. or 2015. But I'll then ask, well, but in that between you know the last five years or ten years, how much has your uh, currency? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, deflated relative to the U.S. dollar, and if it has, then your buying power has effectively, you know, gone down. So mm. it's the same amount of money is actually buying you less because I think it's worthwhile thinking about uh, our buying power in global terms because ultimately there's global trades. So everything is effectively uh, there's a cost of living component that really works. But if you're if you're buying like a TV that is made in China. Then the cost of that thing is going to be roughly equivalent right. to whatever the price the the Chinese are selling you to, and the margins that you're you know it's going to be roughly you know the course, the yeah. price of yeah the price of an iPhone is roughly similar <laughs> in most most countries except for tax considerations and uh, exchange rate considerations right and and levies and duties and things like that. So I think that's the way I think about it. So I think it's Im- very very important. The the thing the counter argument is. If you are buying into like you know what like Macarthur Labor is a secular growth share. I think I've been a shareholder since like 2012 or something mm-hmm. like that. It is a company that has slowly but steadily gone into different areas, whether it's payments, you know, building out its network, you know, having its payments systems running over its network, uh, you know, doing delivery of of stuff that you know is being bought and sold over its network. Hugely transformative companies win big time, and if they win big time, it's okay to tolerate those, um, you know, the, the issues that that will come with currency. So I, I'm very careful with currency when I'm, especially when I'm investing in emerging economies. I only want to invest in those ideas in emerging economies, irrespective of where they're listed. It doesn't matter if they're listed in the U.S. stock exchange or the Australian stock exchange or you know Hong Kong. What I really care about is, is it a very disruptive idea? And if it's a very disruptive idea, can it become many times larger than its current size? And then I'm okay to t- tolerate the volatility that comes with, 
with the currency because ultimately they're earning in their their income is in is in that currency. Is it fair to say that you treat the currency a little bit like share prices? You talked on Friday about the fact that you know valuation matters less for a growth company because you, if you get the growth story right, the rest looks after itself. To some degree, as you said, if, you, if, you, if you're buying a, a slow-growing, boring business, you better be right on valuation. It's probably also true. If I, if I was buying a, you know, a mature telco, or I'm thinking about Telstra here, I own shares. For the record, I also own Mercado Libre shares. Um, if, I'm, if I think about the Brazilian version of Telstra, I really want to care about where the currency might go, right? Because if it's going to grow at a couple of percent a year, a big currency devaluation could potentially wipe out 5, 10, 15 years, I suppose, of, of entire profit growth, right? So maybe it, maybe it matters more depending on how, how bright or, or strong the future is likely to be? I think so. I think so. Like, I mean, with, with, with big growth opportunities where there's a multiple legs to the growth, uh, mm-hmm. I think you, you can afford to take more risks effectively. Right? Yeah. Effectively, yeah. you're taking more risk of currencies and other risk factor that you're taking. Uh, this is not a big deal when you're investing in more stable currencies. Although, like, I mean, you know, there, there, are, there have been instances of stable currencies becoming unstable as well. So yeah, That's also true. Uh, and mean, you can kind ultimate. of watch that too, though, right? Like you don't have to know that it'll be stable for the next twenty years. You can just if you're keeping half an eye, and it's just an extra leg to the well, legs. Bad work. You use that to forget the growth options. It's an extra facet to your investment thesis. You just have to be a little bit careful of. I'm Absolutely. assuming the currency is stable. If it stops being so, then it's another reason to have another look and say, all right, do I still do I still feel good about this given the new news of, of potential currency instability? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's true. Awesome. Yeah, Dan Fordsworth, I, I I tend to agree with Doc. I. I'm not worried about currency volatility, um, uh, like like share prices. You know, <laughs> if I was invested on January one last year and woke up on January one this year, um, you know, my share change would have been whatever it was. The fact the shares fell, you know, forty percent and jumped fifty percent afterwards, um, you know, needn't worry us as long as we like what we own, we know what we own, we know the price and the value, and we think it's reasonable or the growth story or both. Um, so I, I agree with Doc. I'm not worried about currency volatility per se, uh, but the chance that you know, much of a thesis might be wiped out by currency change. It's something I've thought about. I own Mercado Libre, so I'm obviously not worried about it in that context, largely because of the growth story and largely because... I got, the other thing I, w- I will say, Doc, for what it's worth is I don't know how you, or not you personally, I don't know any of us have a view on where currencies might be in five or ten years' time either, I have to say. So I'm kind of being a little bit currency agnostic. Um, but yeah, Dan, to your point, I don't really care about reported results year in, year out, month in, month out um, in, in, in terms of the changes in the currency. If they're growing in local currency, that means they're growing in the, company, in the countries they operate in. Uh, because, uh, you know, the same is true of, of as, as Doc mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the Big Ten can and others, uh, we want them to expand internationally, and that does bring on, you know, uh, currency risk and currency opportunity. By the way, on both sides of, the, of that coin, uh, but shouldn't necessarily deter us on this. It, as I said, it, it's super slow growing, and you've got to be more careful. Um, Doc, question from Will. Will's asked a couple of questions. The first is a, a reasonably detailed tax question. We probably won't get into Will, so apologies. We'll, uh, we will talk about your second question, though. He says, "Good afternoon, Scott and Doc. I don't want to hog too much of the special mailbag minutes." but I feel my question is pretty broad and will help some other people as well. He says, I will always do my own research, but I often like to read forums such as Hot Copper to see what others are thinking and see if my own research matches up. A company I do own is, is this PAR. I assume that's the code. And uh, if you've been listening, Will, you'll know I'm not a massive fan of, <laughs> of ticker codes. I think it leads us to think about company uh, share price and tickers rather than the actual business itself. It's paradigm biopharmaceutical, so I'm going to call it Paradigm, mate. Uh, I own in Paradigm, he says, uh, a pharmaceutical company with an osteoarthritis drug currently recruiting for its phase three trials. The share price was at an all-time high, over $4 before COVID. 
and since then has only received good and confirming results, but is hovering around the $2.30 mark. That's close enough to a, a, a 50% loss stock, maybe 40%. A lot of people, he says, on the forums seem to believe that institutional investors have an interest in keeping the share price down. Paradigm has a market cap of approximately 550 million bucks. And my question is, can and do institutions play with socks to their own agenda to force a price down and buy in at a low? Or is this just a bunch of salty investors like me finding excuses to blame a drop in the share price? Cheers, Will. What do you reckon, Doc? Well, like, <laughs> the answer for everything is, 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 you know, anything is possible in this world, right? <laughs> but, but, I mean, here's the thing. Here's the way to think about this. If institutional investors own the share, I mean, the only way for them to drive the price down is to basically be incessantly selling it, yeah. right? That actually drives <laughs> down the, 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 their value holding, right? I mean, the only way you could drive, the, drive a share price down is by either actively short selling it or by selling the shares, by basically having a lot of supply for shares versus demand. So yeah. is it in their interest? I don't know. Like, I mean, why would you, if you hold it, <laughs> you, you wouldn't want it to go down, so you wouldn't purposefully move it down. Uh, and, it, and, you know, and if, if you think there's going to be capital raising, it's actually better that capital raising happens at a higher price than a lower price, because mm. that means less dilution. And yeah, so that's what I think about that. I mean, unless, I mean, and if they're short selling, they clearly think that it's, it should be even lower, right? So I mean, yeah. yeah. I am of the view that, you know, um, it, yes, price can be done because institutions have sold, right? So if, mm. it, it, you know, it's a small company. If, you know, uh, you know, 20% of the company was owned by a few instors and they decided to exit for whatever reason that they decided to exit, of course, the price is a deluge of shares being put into a market for selling, uh, fewer buyers because there's no, you know, commensurate uh, buyers. So buyers are going to ask for a lower price. Um, you know, buyers are going to come in at a lower price thinking that they're getting value uh, and the price is going to drop. So that's probably what has happened. Uh, in terms of, well, I don't know much about this company. Uh, I've actually had a brief look uh, once. One of the things, uh, like this is, uh, it's not a view about this particular company, but it's just, uh, this is, biotech is incredibly hard. Because <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, like if you don't have a product uh, mm. that is generating revenue, and even if you have a product that's generating re revenue that is actually on a patent protection, but there might be a patent cliff uh, when the patent becomes essentially mm. non-enforceable. Um, uh, then somebody else, a generic drug maker, could just reproduce it and um, you know make hay by having lower uh, cost of production, for example, right? So there's lots of generic drug makers, for example, in India who mm -hmm. would be willing to jump into something that has um, yeah, right. a potential for strong revenue growth um, uh, and take market share. So biotech is extremely, extremely hard. The other thing that one needs to understand is you know there might be positive results that have come out, but how far out is revenue? What is the total market opportunity? Mm. How big is that market uh, relative to, mm. you know, how much competition is there? Who else is participating? Do they have backing of Big Pharma in terms of shareholding or milestone agreements with Big Pharma? Do they have to, you know, build a sales team to, um, you know, those are expensive things, building a sales team to actually sell stuff, right? Mm. Um, so all of those are considerations. I don't know what was it that drove the price up to $4. I don't know what it is that has dropped, dropped the price down to whatever it is now. But those are some of the things I would think about. But I would largely say that you know institutions 
wouldn't, you know, that sounds like, you know, collusion, the institutes are colluding to drive the price down. It's nice to think, you know, it's nice, it's I just don't think it's in anybody's interest to do that. <laughs> yeah. So if people want to sell, they sell. That's at least how I think about it, you know. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but that's what I think. Yeah, I like it. I um, well, I'm, I'm gonna be a little blunter, mate. I, <laughs> but kind, but kind. Um, I had a look. I, I pulled up the share price chart, and and just 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 for interest, and it's. I, I would say for for most investors, it's so tempting. Like we all do, right? If if I say to you, how is a share price performing? Someone will say to you, oh, it's uh, it's X percent versus a year ago, and that's that's not unreasonable. That that was that today's price is real. A year ago's price is real. And the difference between those two numbers is is a, a single data point. And that's the data point we tend to, to use, right? I will say, though, for what it's worth, <laughs> having a look at the chart, mate, it was it was only at $4 for about a week and a half, <laughs> and then, or maybe two weeks. Uh, and then it fell uh, back to close to what it was. And in fact, a year ago, the shares were down below $1.50. So it's kind of one of those stories where if, if you said to me, gee, Paradigm's up, what is it? I'll call it uh, 50% for fun. It's close enough to it. Um, Paradigm's up 50% a year. That's amazing. Why is it up so much? As institutions are pumping the shares and making the share price go up? And you'd go, no, no, it's great results. And then you say, why is it down since $4? Well, that must be institutions. Now, I, I, I'm being deliberately a bit mischievous, mate, and, and I hope you take it in the spirit I intended. If not, um, you've obviously stopped listening by now, so I can keep going anyway. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it is tempting to look at one price and, and say, how are we going? It, you know, the, the same is true, by the way. You know, three days ago was the 2020 lows. And we talked about it earlier, questioner who bought shares in May. Everything's up. Is, is, that, is that investing genius? Well, maybe if, if you know, people would, you know, I think it was Zach, was buying shares just in May because he picked the market bottom or something, then great. Oh, we should have, should have done it in March. Um, you know, you could not make money. Uh, equally, from February 19, uh, you know, almost everyone's down, or at least would have been in March. And so you kind of got that. It goes both ways. So the point, the point I guess I'm making, mate, is that, you know, it's picking a point in the past, our brains kind of go, that that price is real because it actually happened. And that's a reasonable reference point. So why is the price now change relative to that? And I would just, I would just to, to use Charlie Munger's um, approach, if, if a problem gets hard, invert it. So I'd ask you, well, why was the $4 price reasonable back then? You know, it's and of course we like higher prices. We own the shares, so we like higher. We think higher is good and lower is bad, and there must be a reason it's fallen. We don't tend to ask ourselves why did it rise from a dollar fifty to four dollars in three months last year? Or yeah, it was last year in uh, between April and, and July. And the answer to that might be actually more illuminative than maybe why it's fallen since. I will say, and I'm not a. I don't read charts. I'm please, uh, no one think I'm using this as any justification for any reading of charts. But it is mindful. I am mindful. The volume of shares traded for that three month period between about April and July was massive compared to what it is now. I, if I was a, if I was a betting man, and someone to give me the charts to explain to me what happened, I think there's a reasonable chance that investors got super excited about this. You mentioned you mentioned chat forums, and I won't I won't cast aspersions on any particular forum or even even say it's negative. But what I will say is, there's a lot of volume on a particular stock and the share price rises, I would say there's a bit of enthusiasm slash speculation slash, uh, to use Alan Greenspan's term, irrational exuberance that probably got the share price a bit excited. Now, maybe there were great results. Um, maybe that's all justified. Maybe the, maybe it is worth more than it was back in April of 2020. But as the as the share, as the volume went up, share price went up, since then, volumes has gone down. People are not excited about it anymore. And if you haven't, it's like any auction, right? If you've got 25 people at your auction today and in three weeks' time, you've got 10 people at your auction, there's a pretty good chance that maybe those 10 people are the highest bidders. But if the two or three people that bid the price up in the 25 aren't there anymore and the rest don't really value your house as highly today as the people who were there last auction, they're probably going to pay less for it. And so 
I it's a, it looks to me and again I'm not no 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 chart reader I'm not seriously anyone read charts but if volumes are like a quarter of what they were back then uh, I think there's probably a lot less hype I, I would be tempted to say that the irrational pricing wasn't now but was probably then and I will say for what it's worth across the board for all sorts of stocks stocks that are mentioned on our website stocks that are mentioned in any chat forums if you're your brother-in-law your taxi driver anywhere um, you look at those at those businesses um, and just be very, very careful, mate. There is such a long, long, long tr- drain of, of bad results from overhyped stocks because they got overhyped because everyone gets excited about it. Then everyone forgets about it and they sell and move on. And when they sell and move on, if no one else is buying, what happens? Well, the share price gets pushed down because the potential buyers aren't as excited as the sellers were back when they were buying. And that's just that's just the supply and demand story there just means that the share price falls. It won't always happen. There are plenty of examples of stocks that go up and keep going up. So I'm not saying you should read charts. I desperately don't think you should read charts ever. But it does. if you look at that looking backwards, it does look like some sort of irrational exuberance in the past rather than pessimism today. And to Doc's point, no one's pushing the price down, I'm pretty sure. Could have happened, I guess, in some circumstances if they were super keen, super clever, super capable, that kind of stuff. I don't think it's very likely. Anything else on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. <laughs> Speaking of Charlie Munger, thank you. <laughs> Nicely done. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. What for Claudia, mate? This isn't a question. This is just a comment, but it's worth sharing. Absolutely devo, she says with three frowning faces. Naturally, I wish Doc all the very best, but wowza, what a loss. I love listening to the podcast and enjoy the different pearls of wisdom, perspectives, and knowledge base. Read Doc and Scott. Uh, really complimented each other and made for food for thought for provoking, intelligent, and enjoyable debate. I have learned something from every single pod I have listened to. I sincerely hope the Thursday and Sunday mailbag pods continue. They pretty much certainly will, Claudia. Honestly, uh, would not have been able to venture into the share-based wealth creation arena without these two and the Motley Fool services on offer. Thank you to you all. Cheers, Claudia. So there you go, Doc. Uh, no, nothing. No, no comment. No, no question. Sorry, just a, a comment. Uh, wow's up, what a loss. I think she's pretty much spot on there. Thank you, Doc Claudia. Let, let's go to Joey. Greetings, Scott and Doc. Hope you're both doing well. We are. Thank you, mate. Thank you for all the valuable insight you provide. You are both like wise masters, handing out nuggets of knowledge to investing novices like myself. I'm in my twenties. I just started investing in late 2020, and I'm constantly wondering what is the most efficient way to build a portfolio. Actually, I'm sorry. This is not this is not from Joey at all. I've put two questions together. The question's right, but it's not from Joey. <laughs> sorry, Joey. Um, uh, I'm writing to you in hopes that you might explain some portfolio building strategies on the podcast. Quick background. My, st- my small portfolio started as a 10-stock portfolio. I've been growing it by purchasing more shares of each company on a monthly basis. The problem is, as I get deeper into the investing world, I learn about new companies and formulate new ideas. And then I want to open new positions with shares in different companies. There always seems to be a newer, better idea that I did not previously know about. This seems to be a never-ending cycle for me as I now have 20 stocks in my portfolio. So that's the original 10 plus 10 new positions in less than a year. At this rate, I fear that following so many new ideas before building my initial positions is spreading my money too thinly to capture any meaningful gains. I don't want to end up with 200 different stocks. My question is, do you think it's more efficient to build substantial positions in each of your originally chosen companies before branching out into different ideas? Or is there virtue in chasing new ideas as you learn? Or maybe there's a third option, such as holding cash, waiting several months or years until you have researched a basket of new ideas 
before deciding whether to use it on new positions or adding to existing ones. Also, if you don't mind, <laughs> it'd be very helpful to hear what both of your strategies were when you first began building your own stock portfolios to gain some of your insights. Thanks again. I look forward to hearing what you think full on. And this particular question, I didn't want their name mentioned, which is why it's not at the bottom of my page I've got in front of me and why I assumed it was part of the next question from Joey. So Joey, stand by. We are getting to you. In the meantime, Doc, um, starting off small, new ideas, exciting ideas, buy, add, buy, add, buy, add, 20 stocks in a year, worried about 200. How should our questioner go about building a portfolio, being a novice and wanting to buy everything they come across? Yeah, look, I mean, look, I've said this before, the academic textbooks will say, you know, you want a smaller concentrated portfolio and maybe after the, like adding 20, 25 <laughs> companies to your portfolio, it's uh, got all the benefits of diversification and things like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think that's, not, I personally think there's no right answer. You could have 20 companies, you could have 10. 10 is like highly concentrated and you could have 50, you could have 200. So it is really a very individual thing and it really depends, right? I mean, mm -hmm. one way to look at this is to say, well, you know, so sometimes if you're looking at ideas and you like this idea and you, you've done some research and you think it's worthwhile learning more, sometimes you can just start a position, or at least I do that. I, I call this like mm. startup position. I, start a, I take a small position and that sort of is a way to just keep track of it and then to mm. think about adding more uh, on you know doing my work and uh, you know feeling good about it and that's a perfectly fine approach to take mm. so incrementally build positions and you might have uh, you know a few positions that you don't build and eventually you can decide to sell them and that's an option I mean the other option is as 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 has rightly been pointed out is to not buy them all at one go and do the research and then you know, read the information one has got in their hand and then eventually mm -hmm. buy them. I feel like there's no right, like, I mean, you know, there's no right answer. Um, I used to have, so he asked, uh, the questioner asked about uh, what has been my experience, you know, when I was naive or uh, I'm still naive, but when I was even more naive, I, I had a lot more positions that gave me a little bit of a comfort, but I also felt at that point that, you know, I need to have these because otherwise I'm missing out uh, on potential, you know, big winners. And, and so I used to have more positions and that worked okay. And then now I think what I do is I have a little bit more control on that's the next big thing. And if I don't have it, I'll miss, miss out. I, I, you know, I'm a little bit more pragmatic or I feel like I'm a little bit more pragmatic. I may not be pragmatic. And I tend to spend a little bit more time before I actually add anything. Uh, and I think the thing I'll point out is everything actually ultimately, I think what, this is one of the things that people forget, I think. Everything is ultimately a function of your portfolio size, right? Mm -hmm. If your portfolio is already very big, yeah. a small position really doesn't do much, mm. right? If your portfolio is still in building phases, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> Gosh, you know, you, you're still in the building phases. <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, you could be this, it's in, in both ends, it could be that, you know, it, 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 the initial thing that you're doing really doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, yeah. Then, so uh, you, you, what you want to really try to do is you want to have, at least at a higher level, you want to have positions that are, 
size such that, and if this only like if you're a growth investor and if you're looking for these big winners, then then this is sort of a strategy, which is you have positions that are there such that if they become a ten bagger, they are meaningful. They'll become a meaningful component, mm. but if they don't, they went like if they go down ninety percent, they're not going to meaningfully hurt you. Yeah. That's yeah. one way to approach them. And then what happens is a big multi bagger doesn't happen overnight it takes time <laughs> and yeah. you can observe the story and along the way add opportunistically mm-hmm. so that's what i actually tend to do i tend to like you know and then and then once my position has reached a particular size i just say well you know it's five percent of my portfolio now now i'm not going to do anything to it and i'm just going to let it ride uh, mm. and 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 let it be right so i try to get my positions to a particular size that i feel like is appropriate for their uh stage of business life and their potential upside, and then I let it be and let it ride at that point, um, and that could be anywhere from like you know 0.5 percent position to a two percent position, mm. and yeah, again like I, I yeah. So again, you, some people have detailed spreadsheets and how they figure out to, you know <laughs> they look at sharp ratios and try to control the volatility of the portfolio. I don't really care about volatility. So I just you know I just pick the best ideas I can find and then mm-hmm. just think about their upside potential and their downside risk and just size it accordingly. And then I let them ride. Mm. Love it. I Well, I'd only a little bit. Um, I think that's spot on, mate. I, <laughs> so I think the oldest stock I've got in my portfolio I've held, held longest is now, I want to say maybe 15 years, maybe, maybe Berkshire's a little bit longer than that. I can't remember. Um, but about that. And I also have... A vivid memory, and it's one of those things that was. So I was investing during ninety eight, ninety nine. I wasn't. I didn't get caught up in the dot com palaver in a big way, and I was just starting to invest. And I can remember looking at. I have. I don't know why. I had this vision of myself at my computer screen at work, um, working for Heinz at the time, just for just for the fun of, of a bit of extra color. Uh, and I remember looking at my computer screen. I, I just you know there's a couple of mates at work as it was. Stocks were all a go go, all a rage, and we're all talking about it. And I had some businesses in there that I, I care to not remember. <laughs> so I care to remember. Uh, I had computer share early on, then sold it. I own Sausage Software, if you remember that one. Um, no, that you won't dock and neither will our, our listener because he wasn't born then just to really rub it in. Or maybe just. Um, anyway, the, the, whole, the whole kind of... Um, the whole lesson there is that I own almost nothing I had early on, but the process of investing early on was instrumental in me developing as an investor. And so I would say anonymous questioner um don't be too worried about what you own now get in get involved make some mistakes in fact you're better off making mistakes with, with less, less, more amounts of money the larger amounts of money um buy some companies that make sense just kind of get into the game you know um it's almost like uh, we i don't know what we do with that football analogies mate but uh it's almost like you know the, the grand final winning halfback there was a straight path between the under sevens and, that, and the grand final and if you'd known it in reverse you could actually just do it in reverse but you got to play the game. You've got to learn what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Is it your passing game, your kicking game, your running game? You know, Do you work on that part of the game or the other part of the game? Uh, you lose some games, you miss some tackles. And it's kind of one of those things where each one of those experiences helps you become the player you are when you end up winning the grand final. And it's a bit of a tortured analogy, I get it. But that's kind of, it's still kind of real, right? Like it, there are mistakes I've made. I, I've said many times, I sold Domino's personally on behalf of our members at 13 bucks, having made a 60% gain. I thought I was a genius. The shares are now 100. <laughs> so, you know, I, having learned that mistake, I now know and I don't sell as early as I would have otherwise with other companies. And that saved us and our members from a lot of loss. So 
you know, loss in terms of actual loss, but also lost profits, foregone profits. That's that's important, right? That, those are important lessons. So I would say don't try and be right up front. I mean, you try and be right, but no, you're going to be wrong. That's probably the better way to put that. Um, we always try and be right, but you're going to make mistakes. You're going to get some stuff right. You're going to get some stuff wrong. You're going to look back and go, oh man, I wish I'd bought that. I wish I'd sold that. I wish I hadn't sold that. Um, that that's going to happen. So don't don't put too much pressure on yourself to get it absolutely right out of the gate. To Doc's point, you're going to build your portfolio slowly. That makes sense. One point I will make, and I can't give you personal advice, but I would say if you've got 20 stocks in 12 months and it's kind of come about because each new stock seems exciting, there might be a little bit of FOMO going on. So I would say just be a little bit careful. Um, if you're at 20 now, potentially you could be at 40 this time next year. As you say yourself, you don't want to get up at 200 stocks. I do wonder if you looked back and thought, did I really know enough to be confident enough about some of those recommendations, some of those purchases, sorry, we make recommendations, you make purchases, um, some of those purchases. Do I really feel great about those? Did I, was I really right at the time or was I not, 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 you know, you, I'm not saying you, you could have known differently because you're learning as you go. So I'm not, I'm not saying criticize yourself for not knowing stuff, but you might say, did I really know enough about buying that company or did I just kind of get a little bit too excited about it and thought, yeah, it's fine, I'll buy that now. Uh, did you really sit back and think, is that really the company I really do want? Do I, I really understand it well enough? Does it really belong in my portfolio at the time? Not with hindsight, but at the time, can you look back and say, I might have made some mistakes there? And if you can, then maybe just just maybe do try and buy a little bit less frequently, potentially, um, and with a little bit less FOMO. And just make sure that it makes sense. The other thing I would say, if you've got 20 stocks, there may well be some already. If you've already found some new ideas, some of you look back and go, actually, that was just a straight out mistake. <laughs> that was dumb. I should never have bought that stock. Don't be afraid to sell it. I, we don't, absolutely don't want you to overtrade ever. But, you know, I said my, my, my original portfolio back in 98, 99, I own none of those stocks today. Uh, maybe some of them I should, maybe some of them I shouldn't, I'm not sure. But uh, what I do know is that, you know, having having held them held them and not reinvested that money somewhere in bed, I would have also been doubling the mistake of, of buying incorrectly in the first place. Any more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. Cool. I'm going to, we're kind of getting towards the end of time. So I'm going to move some stuff around, Doc, to make sure I get some uh, some Doc love in here. So let's go with a question from Nick. Hey, Scott and Doc, I listen to the podcast every week and we'll miss the Doc's wise insights. I'm hoping I can get your thoughts on dividend yields at the moment. Maybe, maybe this isn't a question for you, mate. I'm not sure. In particular, one company, Horizon Holdings, which has a dividend yield of over 7%. With interest rates so low, I would have thought this yield would be very appealing for income investors. Would you have any ethical concerns over investing in this company? All the best for your next chapter, Doc. Thanks, Nick. Doc, I know you're not an Horizon guy. You're not really an income guy, but I did want to make sure you heard that, that feedback from Nick uh, directly uh, as part of the podcast. Do you have a view on Horizon, mate? Do you, do you have a thought on income stocks? 7% yield does seem pretty bloody attractive. Uh, I have no view. Maybe there's a lot of debt, <laughs> which is why they, <laughs> this thing has this, you know, and, and maybe the income will get cut. I don't know. I have, I have not. Uh, this is not my type of company at all, so I have no idea. Do you, do you have any ethical concerns in buying a coal hauler? If, you, if you're someone who does care about the environment and climate change, these guys are, you know, dragging the poison from the mine to the port. Uh, if I, if I, I'm being pejorative and, and deliberately mischievous here, um, but you know, they, they are enabling, <laughs> being part of a supply chain of stuff that gets spewed in the atmosphere and warms up the planet. Do you have any ethical concerns there? No, like I mean, you know, here's the thing, right? If they were not holding it, somebody else will hold it because it's been. Uh, oh, I mean, the moment it has been dug out, and well, the fact that we have coal plants that we, you know, we still have them, right? I mean, so somebody's yeah. going to dig the coal. Somebody's going to haul it. So I wouldn't like. I mean, you know, like we know, we know cigarettes cause so much harm, right? But we still do sell mm -hmm. them. So what with all these labels on the back that you know, like I, mean, 
I mean, you know, maybe they're hidden away from whatever not, but I mean, you know, we didn't ban them uh, in that sense. So, I mean, right, I don't know. Right. Like, I don't have, I don't hold anything against them. I just, it's not a company type of company that interests me exactly for those reasons, right? I mean, if they're a coal hauler and eventually coal is not going to be dug and therefore not hauled, is it mm-hmm. interesting? I don't know. Maybe they haul other stuff, right? Um, yeah. So, the, yeah, I don't hold that. That's not. There's. I don't. That's not an ethical. That's not an ethical. I mean, they're a corporation with real people employed doing real things. You know, they're adding value in. in right, you know, right. in their own way. You know, so I think you know, I don't have any ethical concerns with the company. I just don't know of this company, and typically yes. that is a very high yield. I generally don't. I almost think like it's too high a yield to be true. But what do I know? <laughs> I, I tend to agree. So here's actually a recommendation of one of our other services, Docker. So I, I should say, um, so we are other people who know more about it than we do have, have liked it, and that, that should count for something for us. So not, not necessarily as growth investors, but, but certainly if you're looking for income, that could be imp- impressive. I share the concern. Once yields are over a certain level, it, it says the market's really predicting a yield fall, a yield cut, because uh, otherwise people would be snapping the shares up, the shares price would rise, the yield would fall. That's one option. The other is that the Telstra happened, had this to happen to it, by the way, where the share price fell in advance of a yield cut that everyone kind of saw coming. By the time the company announced, everyone went, yeah, yeah, we know that. <laughs> and so it really didn't, you know, the share price didn't change by the time the cut actually happened. It changed early before that point, which is, again, not, not super surprising. Um, I so some of the guys are banging the drum on Horizon, and I so I don't want to I don't want to give too strong a view on this because I don't know it as well as they do, and there's some people in the full who like it. Um, it re- it reckons it'll grow coal shipments about one to two percent per year over the foreseeable future. So treat it as an infrastructure kind of stock. I do have some concerns about the long term future of the company if there are no longer. Um, or you know, if new, no new coal mines are approved, for example, in a, in some version of the future, as the coal mines that are currently in place stop bringing stuff out of the ground and no new mines are approved, you kind of got a train line with nothing to do. <laughs> you know, if there's nothing at the supply end, there's no point going to the port because there's nothing going on. Um, I don't really know how likely that is, so again, I don't have a strong view, but I'd be mindful of that at least a little bit. Uh, and Doc's dead, as he mentioned, is also true. Horizon was. It's funny one of those things where Horizon was supposed to be. Uh, immune to price changes too by the way of coal and in the past the idea was oh they're just they're just they're, they're selling volume so it doesn't matter what the price is they're going to ship the same amount of coal to the port the problem was it didn't happen because when the price fell the same amount of coal wasn't shipped to the port and so they lost some business um, just be a little bit careful on that i can't strongly recommend against it i can't strongly recommend for it i don't know the company well enough those are some thoughts just to offset the yield sometimes as stock infers, if it seems too good to be true, it might be. So just be a little bit careful. But I can't honestly say I have a, a strong view. Doc, a note from Colin. Uh, unless I question more, another comment, mate, but one you deserve. Dear, 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 Dr. Nirban Mahati, I would like to join the Wailing Extreme Opportunities members and Motley Fool Australia podcast listeners in sending you my heartfelt thanks. The Foolish Leadership will continue to, re- to direct my portfolio and for that, I'm very grateful and also very confident. You have espoused the philosophies of Tom and David Gardner and their company so well and so clearly. Your humor and intellect in delivering them has always helped to reinforce the foolish way to invest and live. For that, I will be truly grateful. However, he says, this is not the main purpose of my email. Via the podcast, you have dragged me, often kicking and screaming, from bank and mining dividend investing stocks to a person who is becoming a connoisseur of capital management forward-thinking leadership, optionality, and the opportunities that offer a company and someone who is ready to question the norms and search for, and more importantly, consider investing in, companies I would have avoided at all costs less than two years ago. Your opinions, says Colin, 
have always been clear, intelligent, and even when challenging, brilliantly explained. I understand now the many hats you have been wearing, and I'm all too aware of the draining effect that can have. I am sad the Motley Fool cap is one of the hats you have chosen to take off. Just like Scott in the mailbag podcast of last Sunday, uh, Thursday, he says, I would love to hear from you from time to time, perhaps a la Morgan Housel and his occasional US podcast visits. But that will not change the huge effect you have had on me personally and financially. Thank you, Colin. That's pretty cool, mate. Yeah, I'll just say thank you to Colin. Uh, he's being too kind, uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll just say thank you. Kind, but not too kind, mate. I think, uh, I think justifiably justifiably kind. Uh, question from Joey, mate. Uh, love the podcast. Gave it five stars. Good man, thank you. I hope this letter finds you well. I know you're both busy men, so I'll get right to the question. I think what Joey means is I know you guys ram- ramble on a lot, and if I don't make it quick, it'll take too long to get answered. He says, I've been considering buying shares of companies that have just gone public within the year. For example, Airbnb, Roblox, DraftKings. Since there are multiple ways in which a company can go public, I was wondering if there are certain types of public companies that investors should be hesitant to invest in. So I'd really love this question, Doc. Does the method in which they go public indicate something about the quality of the company's balance sheet or management? <coughs> Excuse me. For example, should I be more skeptical of a company that goes public through a SPAC merger than a company that IPOs? Should I be more skeptical of a company that IPOs than a company that goes public through a direct listing? What are your thoughts? Here's a, uh, an unrelated uh, unrelated question. We'll get to it in a second. But let me stop there, Doc. So in the US, I don't think, can you do a direct listing here? I'm not sure if you can. You probably can. In the US, we've talked about SPACs. That's the most recent kind of cool, cool kid thing to do. An IPO is a traditional one where they say, hey, send us your money and we'll send you some shares and they'll list on the stock exchange in a couple of weeks' time. The direct listing I actually really quite like. It basically says, we're not going to raise any capital at all. We're just going to start listing the shares on the exchange and the market can decide how much they're worth. So it's effectively, you know, in normal, normal IPO, Woolies goes public, raises $100 million. That money goes to the founders and other hangers on. New people have shares and the shares start trading. With a direct listing, it just literally says Woolies is now public. <laughs> and so you can now buy shares on the stock exchange. There's no book build, no IPO, no prospectus, no carry on. It's just literally the shares now are literally available. Um, and argue, I think Google did this before. Um, to, to Joey's question, he mentions that Roblox did it that way. Roblox is that kind of kids app game toy thing. Um, not doing that justice, of course. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, a fa- I'm fascinated if you have a, a thought, Doc, as to which method you prefer. And they're all, they're all you know, not, not, none of them are bad, none of them are inappropriate or improper. But do you, do you have a preference? Do you kind of look at that and go, that says something about the company or the valuation or the management or the capital structure? Uh, I really don't care much. I mean, you know, I, it doesn't matter to me what the mm-hmm. model is for a company mm-hmm. to go public. What I'm really interested in is what does the company mm-hmm. do, what its future looks like mm-hmm. and what's the current valuation and how much money can I make off it, right? So <laughs> uh, it's, for me, it's pure, pure Show simple, me the money! Know. If there is, you know, it's money, money, money. <laughs> Show me the money. So if, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I really don't care. Like, I mean, you know, there's there's all these issues around, oh, you know, the IPO process. Uh, IPO process almost ensures that the stock uh, is going to, like, pop because that's the advantage of, you know, if you're going to the, the usual people who take, uh, take a company public, then mm. they're going to make sure that their clients actually get a pop so they can sell out right, right. With, the, with the first day pop or second day pop or whatever it is uh, holding. Direct listing essentially ensures maximum value creation for existing shareholders. Like, from my perspective, I'm none of them, right? So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not an existing shareholder, so I really don't care. Um, and, <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and yeah, so I think. I, I will. Yeah. I will. So I, 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 yeah, slightly. I, I don't okay. Go on. No, I, I really don't mind. I, it, it, that's not a consideration. I think the company is the most important company. Price, yeah. future opportunities, what really matters. So I'm going to agree with you completely, but then add a but, because that's just what I like to do. Uh, the, you're, you're, you're dead right. The company is the most important component, right? And if Apple had been listed at any one of those methods, you know, it would have been worth investing in by, by definition, right? So you're absolutely right. I will say if you're looking at a company, though, and you don't have a degree of, you know, kind of high, 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 massive degree of confidence in the business, and particularly in the management team, I would suggest that there is something potentially just just be mindful of those businesses that don't, you know. So it matters It matters to the extent you can't just buy the business for your, as you say, doc, because it's a great business. If you can find the apples of the world, who cares? Like, it doesn't matter, right? If they're not the apples of the world, though, and you still think they might be attractive investments, I do think there is some worth of thinking about, a bit like in Australia, you know, if there's underwritten, underwritten, you know, uh, listing and a broker takes up a heap of the shares and, you know, it's hyper, hyperly listed and it's all about this and that, you kind of go, uh, you know, the Meyer IPO, right? Full of photos of Jennifer Hawkins. You might have thought, there's a bit of smoke and mirrors here, a bit of song and dance going on, you know? Uh, what are they trying to get me to focus on or what are they drawing my, my focus from? The way a company goes public, the way a company lists, the way it treats its shareholders, the way it communicates with people, I think can give you some sense of what the business is like. Um, uh, you know, a, a company we both own, Amazon, Jeff Bezos puts his day one letter, at the beginning of every annual report, which is basically kind of a reminder of, hey, here's how we do this business. And that says something about what Bezos thinks and how he, how he wants to run the business and the way he intends to go and build Amazon as a company. And I think that says something. So if you come back to these other ones, a SPAC merger doesn't have to go through the same regulatory approvals as the other two. And I would be a little bit mindful of just saying, okay, if that's true, then I should have my guard up a little bit more to make sure I know all the information I need about that company. Now, the SPAC, if the SPAC runner, a manager, is is credible enough, maybe you don't have to worry about it, right? If, if I've got, um, I'll use Warren Buffett, mate, just for, just for fun. If I've got Buffett buying a, 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 you know, running a SPAC, I'm probably going to assume he's done the due diligence. So I can probably trust he's doing the right thing and buying the right business. And so I can probably uh, allay some of those concerns. But if you've got a cash box SPAC that's buying something, you don't really know what they're buying or why they're buying it, and uh, they bought it without the due diligence, you're kind of going along for the ride, and that's okay. You just have to have a different set of criteria than if you're buying a business that's IPO'd without that SPAC manager's effective stamp of approval. Direct listings I quite like because they suggest a management team that isn't trying to play the IPO game like Google did back in the day. I wasn't an investor at the listing. I am an investor now for the record. I'm a shareholder. Um, I like that. I like the fact they didn't do, do the pump and dump roadshow, make money for the investment bankers' clients. I went, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to list at a reasonable price and put the shares in the market and market can work out what it's worth. I, I really like that. I like a management team that isn't so focused on promoting the, the share price that that becomes half their day job, right? They're just like, well, the shares are there. You either like them or you don't. Now, they, they were Google. We knew Google and that was easier for Google to do. If you're a tiny little, you know, $50 million tiddler on the ASX, you probably need someone to drum up some attention because if you dropped on the boards all of a sudden tomorrow, no one's going to know you're there. No one's going to buy your shares. No one's telling your story. So I don't blame them for doing it, but I, I, I think there is some, there is some, uh, I think, I think the, cho- the method of listing does tell you something about the company and what it chooses to do and how it chooses to operate. And that is probably, that probably goes to, broadly speaking, not in every case, but it probably goes to 
the management team and the and the insiders and what they think and what they want to do. And that should tell you something about how they think and the way they treat their their potential partners, fellow shareholders as a public company. Any of that wrong, Doc? Any of that you challenge? Oh, I don't challenge. I mean, I think that's your, your viewpoint and I think that that's a fair viewpoint. So I don't challenge it um, cool. at all. Yeah. Hey, um, second question, Joey, quick and related side question. I live in the US, but I believe I have similar goals with my stock picks as Dr. Mahanti's extreme opportunities, and I'd like to benefit from the foolish expertise. Now, be really, really clear. I know you know this, Joey, but Doc is leaving EO, so we're not going to tell you join EO and get Doc's stock picks because you're not going to, unfortunately. Uh, we do have high degrees of confidence and faith in the team that are running all of our services, including EO in Doc's absence. Um, but just to be really clear, I don't want to, for any of our listeners, you know, infer or, or lead anyone to to miss the point. So I, I just want to say that, Doc, just to be really, really clear um, to avoid any, any sense that we're misleading anybody. Anyway, he says, I'd like to benefit from the foolish expertise. Can a non-Australian citizen still become an EO subscriber and purchase the recommended Australian stocks? Or am I just out of luck for that? Do brokerages allow people to buy shares on foreign exchanges? Thanks in advance, Joey. Doc, your thoughts? Oh, well, I, I mean, okay. So I don't know what what the the tax implications and those are, again, you know, mm. those are those are considerations that one has to consider in the context of their own situation, the best discuss with a financial advisor or a tax consultant. But I mean, there's no, like, I mean, you know, I buy companies all around the world. Um, I understand mm. what their implications are. They're typically, they're, you know, they're, there are some um, rules around dividends and how the dividend withholding works, but other than that, I mean, you you know, I can buy companies on the you know the Danish stock exchange and the Japanese stock exchange, the Hong Kong stock exchange, and I do that all the time. So there's nothing that stops someone from buying companies in the Australian stock exchange if they want to, or the New Zealand stock exchange if they want to, and they all just need a broker that supports that, and many brokers actually support uh, you know international trading without borders and things like that. But again, you just need to be aware of the rules. Um, so yeah, I said, I would say that it's possible. Uh, just need to have the right broker. Doc, your last question, as I, as I we've let this go a little bit long, but I want to get through some questions. Your last question is, as a, as a full-time professional fool, you'll be, able, you'll be a fool for life and a friend of the fool forever. Uh, but as a, as a professional fool, comes from Sam. And I, I put this one last about for a couple of reasons. One is, um, it's a question Sam's got that relates to your one of your recommendations. It's also, uh, an ETF I bought on your recommendation, mate. So kind of a nice way to to round out uh, your foolish uh, career, certainly on the podcast at the very least. Uh, you gotta, you got to work for another day and a half, mate. We're going to get a full value out of you. But for the podcast, uh, we're, we're finishing this on Thursday morning. So uh, you've got to, got to work a little bit longer. But a podcast question. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. This is from Sam. You've recommended the Asia ETF. It's the Asian Tigers, Beta Shares Asian Tigers ETF. The code is ASIA. On numerous occasions for Asian tick exposure. But I was wondering what your thoughts are on it compared to Vanguard's ETF, where the code is VAE. He says, Asia, the, the Asian beta shares ETF, holds 50 Asian tech companies, whereas the Vanguard com- um, ETF owns 1,430 Asian companies with exposure to many sectors, albeit ex-Japan. I noticed the Asia management fee is about 67% higher than the Vanguard one. So I'd like to know if this influences your recommendation of one over the other. Full on Sam. So Vanguard's product looks like a passive uh, Asia-focused ETF, excluding Japan. The beta shares Asian Tigers ETF is very specifically, mate, uh, a few dozen tech companies, tech-leading companies. It's an actively managed ETF. Your thoughts on the two side-by-side, please? 
Yeah, so uh, the the Asia ETF uh, Vanguard one, that's a it's a very broad one. It's a broad index. Uh, it gives you exposure to pretty much everything, right? It gives you exposure to like real estate, banks, and you know miners, uh, consumer discretionary, yada 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 yada. So it's, and and it's <laughs> it's it's a very very broad exposure. If you have a thesis that says that broad sector. Or, or Asia as a whole is underpriced, and for the relative growth that those companies can deliver, or at least, you know, you think those countries together can deliver for the price they are, then I mean that might be a good buy. The the Asia thesis is completely different. The Asia thesis is focused on so that's about forty odd companies, forty of the best, uh, forty of the largest and the best companies in. It's not I shouldn't say best, but forty of the larger companies in technology space. Again, it's focused exclusively on technology from Asian countries, which includes, I mean, you know, people would have different definitions of Asia, Asia but it would include countries like, you know, this South Asia too, so India and so on, uh, are included in it. And you, it's a technology play, basically. It's a technology play, and it's a play. And a couple of things that I really like, I... You know, yes, it's active. So in the sense that, you know, somebody makes the index, the index is rebalanced and the index has, I guess, in some sense, you could say arbitrary ways of deciding, right? That's the arbitrariness. But, it's, but what I really like about that that exposure is it gives you exposure, ex, exposure to, to companies in Asia, which are technology-focused. But there's an interesting thing about technology in Asia. It, it, Asia has hundreds of different languages, different geopolitical realities, different cultures. Mm. And that thus creates an opportunity to apply technology that is, uh, apply technology holistically for particular cultures, which results in very different types of solutions, right? So while you might have very different, say, cultures in, say, Europe, from a consumption point of view of technology, they tend to be, you know, very, very similar. Yeah, right. Right, so uh, I think that's the opportunity that Asia presents. What actually, you know, the, the solutions in China will be unique to China. Solutions in India will be very unique to India um, because of their large sizes in terms of population, landmass, uh, you know, uh, culture, uh, which is you know very Eastern versus being very Western. Right, um, there's a lot more similarity in the culture in, in say India and China with Japan than with say the West. Right, so. So those, I think, create very interesting opportunities, which I think is not going to be competitively, which gives these companies a competitive edge compared to, say, competing with uh, a Western behemoth, right? So mm. it's, and, it's, and I'll give an example here, right? You think a company like Amazon should be running the show uh, when it comes to online retail in these countries, but it does not. Right. In some cases, it could be regularity <laughs> hurdles. In some cases, it could actually be cultural hurdles. Mm. It could be infrastructure mm. hurdles, right? So, and therefore, it gives an opportunity for local companies to prosper. Then, you know, there are some low-cost advantages that you can leverage. There are certain skill sets that are, um, uh, you know, that's a combination of cost and um, skilled labor. So, for example, a lot of the chip productions, like, you know, sem semiconductors, happens in Asia. Right, mm. so the semiconductor technology companies are over, are you know U.S. listed, um, but a lot of the semiconductor production actually happens physically in Asia, Taiwan, for example. Right, so I think it's very interesting 
for for that reason and it's been a fantastic winner for us at extreme opportunities and I, you know i think you own it and i think you know mm-hmm. i think it's again it's a it's a great way to have broader asia exposure you don't have to actually pick individual companies which is sometimes hard to do right i mean, I mean unless you you know you're asia focused investor and you're building an entire portfolio of asian stocks this is a really nice way of getting a diversified you know growth option that with with specific things that you are not going to actually get from a company, com- companies in Australia or companies in America or com- companies in Europe. I think that's the, the beauty of that Asian ETF. So I, I feel I really like it for that reason. Um, yeah. Nice, mate. I, um, I, I will only add, mate, just from your own, from, from your recommendation, from your advice, not personal advice to me, of course, because you can't do that either, but uh, from, from your suggestion, what I, what I like about the Asian t- Tigers ETF compared to the Vanguard All Asia ETF is kind of the same as my approach, uh, you know, with the Nasdaq ETF compared to the whole U.S. market. Um, if you if you want broad passive exposure to a to a geography, the Vanguard thing is great, and it's low cost and it gives you broad Asian exposure. And that's fantastic. I think it's really really likely in the Western world, and I'll, I'll they're probably old terms. I can't think of a better world, but the English speaking world is probably a better way to put it these days. Although again, that's not even not even hundred percent true. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the traditional kind of English-speaking Western world, uh, the big tech companies are hugely dominant and will continue to be. And I think the the biggest companies li- likely to be tech, likely to be listed on the, on the NASDAQ, I think will really continue to do very, very well. So if you think about the, the Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix, uh, you know, Tesla, whoever I've forgotten, um, Microsoft, the, these, are the guys, the, you know, these guys will continue to, I think, um, create growth and innovation. And the smaller ones as they come up, Will get will, are likely to be on the Nasdaq and likely to if they end up with larger um, market caps, then they actually contribute to that ETF's performance, and I'm doubly happy. For my my, my thinking, and Doc's made this point before and and now, the analog is in the Asian markets, and again plural, as as he rightly points out, there are going to be a whole lot of other winners potentially. And as someone who is Australian English speaking. Uh, I don't have direct knowledge or exposure knowledge or exposure to those businesses. I know their names, but I don't use Weibo. I don't use um, any of Ten Cents products. I don't use JD.com. I, I can get to Alibaba, but I don't use it. The 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 experience of Chinese and then broadly Asian Indian, broadly Asian uh, consumers and businesses is just very different to mine. I don't I don't I don't have a first hand exposure to that. So I'm not looking to invest in those directly with a with a large degree of knowledge. But I think it's really, really, really likely that some of the biggest winners of the next couple of decades come from Asia because they've got massive populations. They're innovating separately. They are kind of, to some degree, because of language and cultural differences, they're a little, and frankly, the regulatory differences, they're kind of firewalled from the rest of the English-speaking world, which gives them a great opportunity. So the businesses that are being built in China, India, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, South Korea, et cetera, et cetera, um, I, I, you know, I think I think it's great to be exposed to those. I think they will they will do in in those countries what some of the big names we know in Australia have done out of America. And I want to be exposed to that as that growth continues. No matter happen, it's not you know it's not forty five percent of my portfolio, but I really like that. And so I don't, I'm not buying it for broad generic Asian geographical exposure. Exposure, I'm buying it specifically because I think if there's a pattern that gets replicated in Asia as it has in North America and then the rest of the Western English speaking world. I think those companies, that the big ones that are dominant, are most likely to be driving that, and I want some exposure to those as well as. It does give me the opportunity to be diversified, currency, geography, uh, industry, all that stuff as well, which I think is great. So for me, 
you know, the, the Asian Tigers ETF is a is a Asian version of the Nasdaq, which is it, it's a it's a very shortcut version of the answer. It's different, of course, for different reasons. But in my in my investing in my portfolio construction, that's part of how I've been thinking about it. Have I said anything wrong there, Doc? Or is anything you want to add to that? Um, I think that sounds all good to me. Nice. We've let this podcast go longer than usual because I wanted to get through the questions that we had. I wanted to make sure I got some, Doc got some wonderful feedback from those listeners who have taken the time. Uh, anything that comes through separately, I will make sure you get Doc, so I will forward that to you. Um, but I uh, wanted to make sure you heard, and our listeners heard, some of the great feedback that Doc has got. But on a personal level, uh, well, actually, let me do it on behalf of The Motley Fool first. On behalf of The Motley Fool, thank you for your uh, five-plus years of service to our company and to our members. Uh, it has been an absolute privilege working with you, mate. Um our team is far more advanced and developed than it would have been without your insight and mentorship. Your stock picking has been excellent and our members have certainly benefited from that as well, as well as the education and insights you've provided. On behalf of me personally, mate, I've loved working with you. This podcast has been an absolute joy. It is one of the highlights of my week. Um, I get to have a bit of fun with you, have a chat, speak to our listeners, um, share a few laughs, the occasional disagreement, uh, but some good quality discussion in a way that kind of I don't otherwise, you know, I don't spend that much time. This is the most time we ever spend with each other in, a, in a, the rest of the week. This is this is more than the rest of the week combined. Um, so it's been, it's been completely selfishly an absolute joy, mate, and a pleasure. Uh, and then on behalf of our listeners, I just want to say a big thank you because they brought me to do that. Thank you for everything you've put into the podcast, the insights and the observations, uh, the thoughts and the processes. We wish you well in your next career as governor of the Reserve... No, I'm kidding. Um, Doc, as far as I know, Doc hasn't been appointed governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, but as soon as he does, I will invite him back on the podcast for an exclusive interview and I'm sure he will do that for us. He's, he's worked for a quarter of the pay too, so looking forward to hearing more about that. Mate, um, I don't know if you want, any, you want to say any words, but, uh, but thank you. No, as I said, you know, this, uh, the podcast, The Motley Fool, well, first, as I said before, like The Motley Fool has been a fantastic place for me. Uh, I like to say it's been the best place I've worked by a long, long mile. So um, that's great. And that's largely a function of uh, not just the company culture, but also the, you know, and which is by, by definition a function of how the founders created the company, uh, Tom and David Gardner, but also the, the quality of people. So, the, you know, it's one of those things where you're working with people that, uh, spur you on that you know drive you forward that you know make it exciting and that that has been a fantastic part uh, so many friends here uh, to remember and so many good memories which is which is fantastic and, and this podcast has been fantastic you know it, it's, it's been fantastic in many ways um, personally for example I am not a person who likes doing you know I can do a presentation I can speak in front of people but it's not one of my favorite things to do <laughs> and by just by the virtue of actually uh doing this podcast uh you know i feel like i feel a little bit more comfortable talking a little bit more comfortable speaking so you know so that, you know so thank you to all those people who actually listened to it and helped me in <laughs> <laughs> helped me actually get something uh, uh get better at something that i, I think i have not, not been at you know like scott for example is excellent at speaking and you know you, you know the, i could never be scott but i you know i think i'm a little bit better <laughs> at this uh, <laughs> by virtue of doing this so i think thank actually the listeners for and actually i thank scott for actually giving me this opportunity but i also also thank the listeners for actually having uh uh you know um ha having us just dealt listen to me <laughs> it's, it's, sometimes can be it can be uh, can be a pain um other than that i thank you for all the kind words that have come in uh and i wish everyone all the best thank you man i'm going to dispense with the usual finish to the podcast i'm simply going to say mate thank you we look forward to having you back and full on. Full on. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.